Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where we love to think of the possibilities in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minute 65, which begins with Max opening the bus gate to the compound, and it ends with Wes flying into a frenzy at the sound of the interceptor approaching. Happy Friday, Julia. Oh, thank goodness it's Friday. Yep. Not only is it Friday, it's the first day of December, which sadly means that I can no longer make fun of people for playing Christmas music. No, no, you can't. No, it is officially past the time of me just being a... Curmudgeon? Yeah, that's a good word for it. (laughs) I was going to go with something else, but I'll stick with that. Today is also a Friday, as I said before, because I love repeating myself, which means that we have a guest. And this is a remarkable situation because it is the first time we've had an in-studio guest, such as our studio is. And that person is... Ahem, lead developer and database administrator for Plymouth State University and professor of web programming, Nathan Porter. Hey there, Rick. (laughs) So I didn't necessarily bring you on to snub my nose at Indiana Jones Minute because, haha, we have our own Professor Porter. Uh, We totally did. No, we brought you on because you're one of my best friends in the whole wide world, and I wanted you to be part of this project. Well, thank you for bringing me in. It's nice to be your first live guest. (laughs) I hope... You find our studio recording space to be adequate. It is very comfortable. (laughs) And you fed me nachos. It's always a good idea to feed your guests if you have them in person. Just loosen them up a little bit. Porter, I'm curious what your personal history is with this movie or the Mad Max series as a whole. I will admit... Until you guys started doing this podcast, I had never seen the original Mad Max. That is a common occurrence. A lot of people who love the series still have never seen the original. And that was me growing up, you know, sci-fi afternoons where I would watch the looping movies of The Road Warrior and Thunderdome. That was fantastic. And when Fury Road came out, I was there with you guys when we went and saw it. And you first fell in love with it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love Fury Road so much. (laughs) I'm getting so far ahead of myself. Anyway. We do that a lot because we cannot wait to cover that movie. Although, to be fair, I can't wait to cover any movie because every single movie in this series has something special about it. That is very true. And that's a very kind way to say that Thunderdome is bonkers. (laughs) I'm looking forward to Thunderdome on this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Porter, you don't necessarily have a bunch of online projects that you work on, but what is it that you like to do? What are some of your hobbies? Well, you you are correct. I keep a very low profile on social media. Um, One of those caveats of being a teacher. I don't want my students to find me. (laughs) Um, But outside of the internet, I like to craft a lot. I've done amateur cosplay stuff. I have a workshop in my basement where I like to do some woodworking and prop making and basically just let my creative juices flow through heavy machinery. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I spend my free time when I'm not playing Destiny with you. (laughs) In fact, probably one of my favorite pieces that you've made, and I say that with the caveat being because you gave it to me, 
but you actually made a replica hunter knife from the game destiny and you gave it to me and i love it made out of like wood and it's wrapped with the leather not leather um technically it's a shoelace there you go (laughs) couldn't remember the word for shoelaces so but you've done awesome you made a full master chief costume you did some sort of um what what do you call your adventure time costume the badass finn costume yes which was a great excuse for me to experiment with making armor out of hard materials Mm -hmm. never work with pvc pipe (laughs) Um, i've probably taken five years off my life with that project Mm -hmm. it was fun yeah You've made some pretty awesome stuff, and I think it's definitely the highlight of your Instagram account when I see you post new things. It's usually because you're in the workshop working on stuff. Yeah, there's some excitement when I go to another country and post a couple pictures there, but there's a lot more excitement, and I get at least four follows every time I post a project that I've been working on in the basement. I'm looking forward to some upcoming ones where I'm working on a shield from The Legend of Zelda, and I'm tossing around making a giant axe from Iron Banner in Destiny of the Game. Let's spin back around onto the minute because I am definitely not the best interviewer. I'm much better at analyzing movies minute by minute. So we start off this minute with Max behind the wheel of the bus gate and he is all on his own backing that thing so that he can open the door so we can leave. My first question is why is he doing this himself? Why isn't someone opening the door for him? And when I saw that, my first take on it was that he had earned a level of respect from the people in the compound and maybe a tinge of fear. I like that. Like he had the freedom to do it himself rather than someone watching over him. I wonder if he was too proud to ask for help. I definitely feel that Max was A, too proud to ask for help. B, everybody had a modicum of trust that he could handle it himself. But I also feel that none of the people in the compound wanted to give him the time of day. I know it's nighttime. Doesn't matter. Minor detail. But they didn't want to give him the satisfaction of them helping him leave early. Because everyone is rushing around, getting ready to leave. They're packing up vehicles. They're corralling animals. We're constantly seeing people chasing around animals to and fro. So they're busy doing their other things and they don't want to give him the satisfaction of, here Max, let me get the door so you can abandon us. Now that I think about it and think about Max, I don't think he even asked. I think he just went and did it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's not the kind of guy that will ask, oh, hey, can I have this soda out of your fridge? No, he's just going to go get the soda out of your fridge. And then maybe grab a couple for the road. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) As much as he can carry. Yeah. And then booby trap them. Right. (laughs) Now, I say that everyone is busy doing their own preparations to leave. And... I think in the minutes leading up to this, that's definitely a correct statement. But as Max gets the bus all the way backed away, we cut to a shot of the mechanic and his assistant. And obviously the mechanic is hanging in his swing. It's not like he's going to be standing around doing anything, but he's giving Max this look. And you can just tell by the look that he's throwing as much shade to speak in the vernacular of today's youth, at max as he can muster. This is the scene that I was referring to back Monday and Tuesday, sometime in there, that the mechanic is watching Max, and then he's just done, and he just (laughs) goes back to work. But that whole going back to work is not without almost a tropish look of disgust. Yes! I mean, I mentally heard him click his tongue in disappointment (laughs) when he went back to what he was doing. Yeah, it was pretty great. 
I would argue that the mechanic and his impossibly tall hair is not necessarily the star of this shot. I love the fact that you've got Dr. Christopher Greaves. Now, granted, he wasn't a doctor when he filmed this. He became a doctor later, but I love referring to him as a doctor because he became a doctor. But he is sticking roughly sideways out from behind the truck to peek around and see what the mechanic is looking at. And it reminds me of something out of a cartoon where someone is leering around the side of a door and they just appear to be coming horizontally out of nowhere. Completely defying physics. There's actually two prop guys behind there holding him so he can strike that pose. (laughs) But I love him peeking around. And then as the mechanic does his sigh and roll his eyes or whatever it is, the mechanic's assistant kind of pulls back behind the car almost like he's poking out and then he disappears back like some sort of whack-a-mole figure i found it funny i feel like the mechanics assistant mm, kind of steals any scene that he's in just because he's got that that doofy look about him and now that i didn't see that i need to go back and watch this minute again to just see that and laugh about it Although, I say that the mechanic's assistant steals the scene. He steals this scene, the scene where they were yelling back and forth with each other last Friday's minute. That scene was stolen by the redheaded dude who was watching those two guys talk. So that's a whole other thing. We already talked about it. I don't need to rewind that far. So we go from the mechanic and his assistant back over to Max, who has hopped out of the bus now that the gate is open, and he starts walking back to his interceptor, and he is intercepted by the gyro captain and Archie Whitley's character, who I would say are more or less the last ditch effort to make Max stay. They're probably the closest thing in there that he has to a friendly face. Not that I would ever call the gyro captain's face friendly. (laughs) But he's definitely the person in the compound that Max has had the most personal time with. Mm, yes. So if anyone is going to convince Max of anything, I'm sure everyone's banking on the gyro captain being able to call some sort of personal interaction into question or something like that. I wonder if the captain and Arky were sent by the curmudgeon who knew that the good cop, bad cop scene had failed and sent this last ditch effort. Somebody he knew that had a personal-ish relationship with Max. (laughs) I feel like the people in the compound have a very different interpretation of the gyro captain and Max's relationship than it actually exists. Oh, yeah. That is a really good point because every time they have seen both Max and the gyro captain, the gyro captain has been a free man. But most of the time, I would say maybe 90% of their relationship, the gyro captain has been a prisoner. Yeah. Not that his pride would let him admit that. (laughs) No. 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 To the captain, in his own weird mind, they've been best friends and adventure buddies for quite some time now. I love that you brought that up because when I think back on it, when Max first went down to the compound, he left the gyro captain behind. And the compound dwellers don't know that he's there. Like, he never approached the compound on his own because he just kept at a distance and observed. And so the first time the compound dwellers meet him is that time where Max comes back with the truck and the gyro captain just kind of flies down out of the sky and lands in the middle of the compound. And they think, oh, well, Max just showed up. Now this guy showed up. They must be friends somehow. And so they have this not actually the case view, like you said, of their relationship. Now, actually thinking about this, and I'm going back to the fact that, well, sick on my couch, I watched Beauty and the Beast the other day. (laughs) It's making me think of Stockholm Syndrome. Yes. This is almost like a reverse Stockholm Syndrome, where the gyro captain has fallen for Max after being kept. No, that's actually just normal Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) 
But in that same way, yeah, he's falling for Max. That's a really good point. Well, I mean, with that face, how could you not? Just look into those eyes and... Yeah. That deep jawline. Mm-hmm. You know, that reminds me of another Mel Gibson sighting that I had the other day. I have a long explanation for why I was searching for clips from the Casper movie on YouTube. I'm not going to get into it because it's not important. But in the 1995 Casper movie with Bill Pullman and Christina Ricci, Mel Gibson has a cameo. There's one scene where Bill Pullman is washing his face. And then as he dries it off, he looks in the mirror. He transforms into Clint Eastwood. He transforms into Rodney Dangerfield. And then after Dangerfield, he transforms into Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson is there as a cameo. He was on set, but he doesn't say anything. He just kind of admires himself. And Bill Pullman is so impressed that he looks like Mel Gibson that he's just at a loss for words. And then he transforms into the Crypt Keeper and he does like a Macaulay Culkin scream or something like that. (laughs) I don't want to think of the things that that did to your YouTube suggested viewing. Yeah. I try not to think (laughs) about... (laughs) All of the weird ways that the Google robots are looking at my view history because there was that one week where I watched seven videos about how gasoline is made. Um, perfect example on my suggested products for Amazon is now all sorts of exotic animal meat. Yep. Thanks to that one time we tried Minute to see podcast. if rattlesnake comes canned yes which it does good to know yes and you can also buy ostrich jerky and an entire dried tarantula in a can Mm -hmm. and possum everywhere oh yeah possum is so easy to get a distressing amount of canned possum yes out there so now that all that stuff is on my suggested products on amazon yeah amazon knows what you want Mm -hmm. it really does (laughs) or at least it thinks it knows what we want I'd like to think that it just makes assumptions and it's like, oh, you don't really know me. You're like an audience member at a daytime talk show. <laughs> you just don't know be me. concerned the one time you go and you're like, I actually do want that. <laughs> I do want that. <laughs> so the gyro captain walks up to Max and he's like, they've got you wrong. You're not a coward. Stupid, maybe, but not a coward. And the first thing I think of is the fact that he uses the royal they, as in everybody else in the compound. And we get a good visual of everybody else in the compound, because as Max rounds the edge of the interceptor and is standing by the door, you can see off to the left side of the frame, literally everybody else is just standing there watching Max leave, looking at him, giving him those judging looks about how dare he leave and all this other stuff. Do you have the script direction that those extras receive for that? I'd be curious what they were told to do for that scene. Oh, I wish. I don't think our screenplay includes any sort of blocking directions. No, it doesn't. It's not that specific. Not that this movie would probably go to the extent that there would be those kind of directions for those random No, I don't, I don't think those instructions exist. No, but I'm pretty sure George Miller would be like, okay, everybody in the background, just stand there and give him your judgy faces. <laughs> Or however he would word it. I don't want to put words in George Miller's mouth like that. Make him sound really dumb. Like me. (laughs) But judgy faces. Mm -hmm. I love the captain's assessment of Max. That he's not a coward, maybe just stupid. I think that encapsulates Max through all four movies. He does many, many brave things that are stupid. He makes decisions that maybe aren't the smartest, but he is not a coward. He does commit to those stupid decisions yep (laughs) i kind of see it as a way that max and wes are very similar because wes could also be 
interpreted as brave but also stupid and insane yes i think wes makes a lot of emotional decisions because he embraces those emotions and i think max makes a lot of emotional decisions but in the opposite way as in he's making decisions so that he can stamp down those emotions deep down into his emotion hole almost kind of like he feels the emotion acknowledges it and then does the exact opposite exactly like he probably got that little twinge of like human connection earlier this week when the feral child was like, I want to go with you without actually saying I want to go with you because he's a mute character anyway. And Max was like, oh, my heart. And then he's like, no, go away feelings. I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> and then promptly treated him like a dog. Yes. Although he treats his own dog better than he treated the feral child. He treats his own dog almost a little bit better than himself sometimes. Yeah, but dog is best dog. Dog is best dog. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you drew another comparison between Wes and Max. I think they are very, very similar characters. We were talking many, many episodes ago, and it was also brought up on our listeners group that the feral child is almost like an origin that could go either way. He could turn into Max or he could turn into Wes. Because they have so many similarities, it's really kind of the difference between how he handles his emotions mm -hmm. that's going to turn him either into an outwardly psychopath marauder or a loner who actively refuses to connect to anybody. Now, ideally, you'd find some sort of middle ground. <laughs> yes. To become a balanced <laughs> person. Because you could argue that Wes and Max are both deeply unbalanced people. <laughs> but does the wasteland really allow balanced people? I feel like you have to be either one or the other. You have to be crazy in one way or crazy in the other way. Otherwise, the wasteland is going to chew you up and spit you out. The wasteland takes normal people, twists them, and turns them into monsters. Whether that's the scary wolfman monster or that's the heroic teen Ish. wolf monster. You know, you're either a feral beast or you're, you know, Michael J. Fox on top of a truck playing air guitar. So along those same lines, the compound dwellers, I think, are trying very hard to stay in that middle ground. Yes, they are trying not to be bad people and trying not to maraud, although arguably they're really not that good people. <laughs> they, they have do, their flaws. They have their flaws, which is normal, but they're also trying very hard to keep their humanity about them. They're trying to stay in that middle ground, and they understand that to do so, they have to leave. Mm -hmm. But also, you look at them, and they're the sheep. They are the fragile characters in this movie. They're trying to keep that balance, and they're probably the most likely to die. A big plot point of this entire movie is keeping those sheep alive. Mm -hmm. It's probably appropriate that they live inside of a fenced-in area. Yes. With all the predators outside. And then the amount of stark white clothing. Like, there's a big sheep analogy going on right there. Yeah. yeah. We, I think we've been ignoring it up till now, but yeah, there's a huge sheep analogy that we just have not touched on yet. But skipping back just a little. So you look at Max and Wes, and you get that distinct protagonist-antagonist split with kind of those two sides of the same coin. Does that exist in all the movies, do you think? Well, it's hard to say. I know for a fact you've got Max and the Knight Rider, who are in the first movie. It's really more Max and the Toe Cutter. Knight Rider dies in the first ten minutes. Yeah, but then Max never sees Toe Cutter. <laughs> okay, I think Max spends the same amount of time interacting with the Knight Rider as he does with the Toe Cutter. That is true. And Actual I, shared scenes. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like that first interaction between One him and the Knight Rider, that's kind of their... 
But if you look at that and look at that scene, then yeah, there's similarities between them. Yeah, I feel like the Knight Rider is more of an antagonist to Max because he does have the will to participate in the chase. Toe Cutter springs an ambush and then runs away. But I will say that overall, if, it, if we're looking at the organization that Max is a part of as the protagonist and then Toe Cutter as the antagonist, then that's a better matchup. Yes. Yeah, I think so. But if you think about Max as a person without the organization that he's part of, he could very easily be Knight Rider. That's very true. That's yes. why he quits and goes on vacation for half the movie because he doesn't want to turn into the Knight Rider. Skipping forward to Thunderdome, you've got Max and I would say Auntie Entity, Tina Turner's character, is supposed to be his main antagonist in that film. Well, she's someone who's embraced the wasteland in a different way. And almost reimposed that structure that he had in the first movie but in a way that you could only do in the wasteland yeah i think where max represents the lone wanderer and auntie entity represents the rebuilding of society people banding together to work together everything that she stands for is everything that max shies away from so it's more of an ideological antagonism as opposed to more of a oh i need to beat you but then again i'm pretty sure that opinion will change once we actually start watching thunderdome because we'll be able to really analyze it but the thing about these mad max movies is that nine times out of ten it's not so much max versus wes it's papagallo versus the lord humongous it's captain fifi mcafee versus the toe cutter it's furiosa versus a morton joe max is just the trump card that comes in in the he's the lone third one. act exactly he is the extra bullet in the chamber that the people in the actual story used to accomplish their goal he's that weight that could make the scale go either way exactly very interesting this would be a completely different set of movies if max had made a different choice as to which group he supported he could have been that magic bullet for either side Oh, yeah, because if Max came along and joined Lord Humongous's marauders, like if they approached him in a non-antagonistic way and said, hey, we need to get all this fuel. If you help us out, we'll give you all the fuel you want and let you go. Max definitely could have infiltrated the compound and really messed up their stuff. And, and go then the movie only would have been 30 minutes long. Exactly. <laughs> if you think about Thunderdome, if Max had actually gone through with his deal with Auntie Entity and killed Blaster. Wow. Okay. Spoilers if you've never seen Thunderdome before, but if you're listening to us, I'm pretty sure you've seen it multiple times. But if Max had actually gone through with his deal in Thunderdome, exactly. The movie would literally be half an hour. He never would have gone beyond Thunderdome, which I think some people argue may have been a good thing. But no, I love that idea. That Max is just the weight that tips things either way. But, you know, like we've said, he's not cowardly. He's just kind of dumb sometimes with the decisions that he makes. In fact, the gyro captain specifically says, you're making a serious mistake to Max. But he's not referring to Max leaving. He's talking about Max making a serious mistake by splitting up a great team. And, and that team is, A, not a team that's ever actually existed. Exactly. And B, it's one that is definitely in the gyro captain's head for his own survival. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that you brought that up because I have always thought of the captain's desire for this team up to be so that the captain could continue the adventure. He wants to be part of this. He wants to be part of something bigger because he is such a social character. He loves to talk. He just would rather be around people. So he wants to continue this adventure. But yeah, you bring up a good point that his best chance of survival is with Max. He's seen Max in action. He knows that the best way to deal with a threat is to have Max there. <laughs> 
So if you want to live and you want this whole massive plan to work, having Max on your side is key, which is what we were just talking about with all of the movies. Yeah. He's the swinging factor. If you want to stay safe from danger, you put Max between you and the danger, and he will do something insane to either <laughs> deflect or take care of that danger. And I love that you mentioned that this team is literally just in the gyro captain's mind, because as we mentioned earlier, the gyro captain spent most of his time with Max in chains as a literal prisoner. Like, there was no partnership there. You know, when the gyro captain says, you and me together, think of the possibilities. Yeah, I can think of the possibilities of you in chains all the time. The captain seems to have filtered that out. Yeah. Like, Again, Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> yes. He's ignoring yeah, all like, the terrible things. That, that all happened, <laughs> but it was for fun. That was bonding. At least he didn't kill me. Got to look at the upside. Yeah. And the gyro captain is a very positive character. He, he is. is a, he's an optimist in the is. wasteland, which is insane. Yes, yes, it is. I wonder, does the gyro captain look at getting chained up and forced to work? Is that how he just interprets healthy relationships? Because if so, it's going to be really interesting between him and Archie Whitley's character once they get to wherever they're going to. And then he walks into their tent one night with a bunch of chains being like, hey, hey, hey. And she's going to be like, uh, not for me. And he's going to be like, no, for me. Oh, <laughs> uh, and now that exists somewhere out on the Internet. Yes, it does. <laughs> Uh, speaking of the two of them together, this whole time that the gyro captain is talking to Max, Arky is there right next to him. Very close. I love the idea of them hanging out because she made the decision to stay and then he decided to stay with her and now they're just palling around helping people prepare to leave. I kind of equate this as a real life situation like two people are dating one of them asks the other to move in and if the other one doesn't want to move in together sometimes that's a break in the relationship. You're done. Either you move in together, either you move forward or you're done. I like that they did not do that. They were able to overcome this thwart running away together mm -hmm. to still form a relationship yeah i think that gives a lot of credit to the gyro captain he doesn't have the ego that max has he's not too proud to go along with the plan that someone else has he looked at the situation at hand all of these people struggling to try and accomplish a goal to get out of the wasteland he saw arky wanting to stay with him and he like we probably said back when we were talking about it he looked at the two options i can go out into the wasteland and i can die alone or i can stick around here and at least die with a family it circles back to him being a very social person mm -hmm. he wants people around you know what's a fun detail that i noticed this whole scene the gyro captain is holding a chicken by its legs it is a dark <laughs> colored chicken arky also is holding a chicken it is a light colored chicken their chickens match their outfits. And also how they are interacting with the chickens also matches them. The captain is holding the chicken by its feet upside down. So a little careless. A little absent-minded. Yes, a little absent-minded. And then Arky is cradling her chicken like a loved pet. Like the same way she cradles her dog. Yeah. And actually didn't notice the chicken for a while because it blends in with her blouse. <laughs> I only noticed because her, her shoulders are slumped over. Like 
like she's holding on to something. I think he's holding the chicken by the leg because when you are just moving chickens from point A to point B and you don't want them to like peck and flap and what at you, you hold them by the legs and then you just shake them every time they start acting up and they'll calm down. They'll calm down. <sighs> now refresh my memory. I don't think the chicken was moving at all. No. Was, was his dead and hers was still alive? Well, it's possible. Because maybe he actually had a rooster. That's opening up a door. (laughs) That we would have to edit out? Exactly. (laughs) I don't want to get too far into the gyro captain walking around in the middle of the compound, holding on to his rooster, wagging it around at people. It's unsavory. But not out of character. (laughs) No. I'm actually okay with that, because we know by the end of this movie, he becomes the leader of the group. Mm -hmm. So... Even now, when he's he barely knows them, he has made a personal connection with one person. He is already showing leadership qualities. By strutting around and shaking his rooster. Yes. But he's also taking the steps to aid a group of people that he's just barely met. That's true. They are important to him because they are important to the woman that he's interested in. Yes. And it could also be as simple as that is one for meat and the other is for eggs. Yeah. I still believe that the chicken he's holding is alive because, and I don't know why all of my chicken-based knowledge comes straight from the Napoleon Dynamite movie. Everyone has to have a source. Wow. There's that one part in Napoleon Dynamite where Napoleon is working, moving chickens from one set of cages to another, and they tell you, you grab them by the legs and you pick them up and give them a shake if they start acting up, and then you just pick them up from one cage and put them in the other, and he makes like a dollar an hour doing that wow this is just from memory but i seem to remember that if you scare chickens too much they'll stop laying eggs well that explains a major plot point in return to oz but that's a whole other movie (laughs) we're also exposing how extensive our knowledge of chicken care is (laughs) (laughs) so maybe that explains why arky is being so nice to her chicken it's because it's an egg laying chicken and also arky is gentle and nurturing by nature yeah she's a good person I think she actually represents purity a lot in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Yes, she does. Absolutely. So in that pair between Arky and the gyro captain, we have purity and optimism, which make a great pair, maybe a little naive, but they make a great pair. So that's the pair that goes on to be the leaders of this group. And those are two of the main ingredients you need when you're inspiring hope. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And given that they have to go so far, I think it's like... 2,000 miles. Is what they say. Yeah. I think we said when we were talking about their destination of... The Sunshine Coast. The Sunshine Coast. That if they were able to travel on existing roads, they would only have to travel 1,600 kilometers or about 1,000 miles. Yes. But it's still a long trek. I mean, if you can go highway speeds, it's a day and a half. If you can only go like a quarter of that, maybe several days. But when you think of who would be great options for leading the great northern tribe by the ocean, you know, you take an optimistic adventurer type and someone who's really empathetic and caring, you put them in charge and it'll probably foster a lot of good things in the tribe. Especially if you are this group of people who is, you know, we've described them as sheep, but if they all want to hold on to that purity and humanity that's what you want yeah that's exactly what papagallo said the other day you know they're all human beings with dignity and if they want to hold on to that dignity they could do a lot worse than the gyro captain and arky willie's character for papagallo i think he associates dignity a little too closely with pride yes yeah 
He's more aggressive in his dignity, whereas Arky is more gentle about her dignity, which is fair. Everybody interprets dignity different. It's one of those attributes that is personal and based on perspective. So I think it's, you know, good storytelling that Papagallo does not end up leading the people to mm. the coast. Yeah. It's also a lot, if you think about it, of what people need at the time. Very true. To survive strong in the center of the wasteland, having that aggressive dignity and pride probably is what kept them alive so long. Mm. Absolutely. The will to fight. Mm. I like that. Yes. And they do have, <laughs> I was about to say, they do have a strong will to fight, except that we've seen a group of them say, we don't want to fight anymore. But That's even it. after that, they kept fighting. Yeah. I think the main reason they kept fighting, though is because of people like Papagallo and Zeta and Warrior Woman, those strong-willed individuals who got them through that. There's definitely the subset of extras that sway with whoever the strong and controlling personalities are. Whoever gives the best speech. As is in any movie. <laughs> yes. Back in the minute at hand, Max is sitting in his car and he looks up to the two of them and he says, See you around, maybe. Goodbye. Good luck. And starts driving away. But let it be known that the entire time the captain is talking to Max, Max isn't even really paying attention to him. He is doing something yeah. in the car for <laughs> much longer than it takes to start a vehicle. Yeah. You could argue that the gyro captain is able to slow down Max's departure, but, you know, Max walks around the car, opens the door, stands by the door for a little bit, but then climbs in, closes the door, and then the gyro captain just got a face right up against that window, and he's like, you and me together, think of the possibilities, and blah, 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 and then Max is like, I'm I'm, I'm going, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, that's a K-thanks-bye situation right there. <laughs> yeah. I think you hit on an interesting point, Porter, that why is it taking him so long to start up the car and leave? And I don't think it's a gender split, because I've seen both genders do both ways. Some people get in the car, start the car, and drive away. And it's like, fast. You just do it. And then other people just take a long time to do it. I don't know what they're doing. They're just taking their time. Mm -hmm. And I would think about that, like, if he adjusted his mirror. Does he have a rearview mirror? I don't think he has a rearview mirror. <laughs> Probably not. But he's not fiddling with his radio dial. He's not adjusting his mirrors. Yeah, he doesn't um, have a phone that needs to get plugged into the aux cord. Not, I mean, uh, putting on a seatbelt. <laughs> wow, none of that. <laughs> that's None of that applies here. So again, I, I do wonder what he's doing. Yeah. But maybe he's not actually doing anything. Maybe, you know, he's looking like he's doing something. So that he doesn't have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. But he's clearly hearing the gyro captain because he totally could just get in the car and drive away. We've seen him do that before. Maybe something's holding him there a bit longer. Like deep down, he knows that he should stick around and help out these people. But he he's making that thing where he stamps down those feelings. Stupid and brave. Into the feelings hole. Hashtag feelings hole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's doing the same thing to the captain and the compound as a whole that he did to the feral child. The feral child wanted to be with him. The captain wants to be with him. The compound wants him to stay. And he feels some kind of draw. And instead of giving in, like you said, he stamps it down into his feelings hole. Mm -hmm. But enough of that 
caring is left for him to actually say a semi pleasant goodbye. Yeah, I'd, I'd call to it semi pleasant. I mean, the, the see you around, maybe. It's, I think, about as good as Max can do. Yeah. Yes. As a, as a cordial farewell, it's kind of that transfer of, like, you know, I know you think we're a team. I'm going to give you a little bit of that thought, even yeah. though you're really just my prisoner. Like, hey friend we might see each other again and in the back of his mind he's like there's no way i'm ever gonna see this guy again (laughs) yeah his good luck seemed a little sarcastic yep i will say it's rather polite of him to just give them a very straightforward goodbye and then he says good luck where the subtext being you're gonna need it yeah and you know there's so much that doesn't happen in these movies that you imagine has happened to max and i don't think this is the first time where he's seen people with hope Mm-hmm. And with these plans, this is not the first time he's come up against that. And he's probably seen it tried a thousand times and failed a thousand times. So yeah. that's that deep-rooted sarcasm. He, in his heart, knows that they're going to die. Yeah, he's probably come across people on a smaller scale. Maybe as he's driving along, he finds a caravan of people or just a small a family in some sort of situation where they're like yeah we're gonna go do this and it's gonna be this way and we're gonna do x y and z and he's thinking yeah sure you will and then he comes across what's left of them later on yes and that is why this movie exists because this group of people lived long enough to tell the story Mm -hmm. that's why there's not a ton of other movies and a ton of other stories about his exploits because honestly most people out in the wasteland die so they're not around to tell stories Mm -hmm. that's depressing it's depressing to think about for max who has experienced a great amount of loss personally and then witnessed more loss out in the wasteland and it's almost like it's following him i mean it's not actually it's the entire world that is that way but i bet to him as he's traveling around it's a very personal experience this loss is chasing him through all of the movies that's probably why he keeps moving you know the idea that he's running away from something yeah do you think he has survivor's guilt oh definitely i mean i don't think we've ever talked about that before i say we're definitely going to get a chance to talk about it in fury road because i feel like max's survivor's guilt is a huge topic in that movie specifically great well at that point it's built up so much oh yeah that i mean if you look at all of these movies that have existed before that as that survivor's guilt building and building and building it had to come to a head sometime that's why i love that underlying subject in that movie because the faces that are haunting him are faces that we've never seen before characters that we have no clue who they are and why they're haunting max and it's just like you said julia it's all of those stories of people that max has encountered and those people don't survive to tell their story yeah and that's what fuels that sarcastic good luck yeah because he's he's seen loss and he doesn't want to face loss and so he is sarcastic about it to hide his feelings because that's what people do Humor is a deflection mechanism. (laughs) I know that very, very intimately. So Max, after wishing them a good luck, he presses down on that accelerator and he peels out of there through the gate and he is off into the night. Can I just add really quick that his car does not sound very healthy? Really? I thought it sounded pretty on par for really? the Interceptor. Oh, Porter, you know more about cars than we do. I definitely felt the exhaust had a more strained note as he was leaving. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is a correlation to the character and what he's feeling at the time. I mean, it's a little high strung. There's some emotion there. It's 
you know, doing something slightly stupid. Um, it doesn't want to go back out into the wasteland. <laughs> oh, dear. It doesn't survive this trip. Well, it's That's a... the true tragedy of the movie. We'll cover that later. Yeah. It's a good thing that the black-on-black black isn't like Kit from Knight Rider. I was going to say it's a good thing that the black-on-black black is not like Knight Rider, but then I realized, oh, wait, <laughs> we have another character named Knight Rider. I have to Who specify. an interceptor. Right. Yes. There's a lot of overlap going on here. A lot of overlap. Thanks, Hasselhoff, for making that confusing. (laughs) Wait, wasn't Knight Rider like in the 80s? Was it before? It might have been running concurrently. Concurrently. I'm not a Knight Rider expert. I have IMDb is. You mean you don't know everything about the Hoff? I do not. I am not a Hoff aficionado. A Hoff aficionado. I I, I feel like my life is a lie. I I think I need to re-examine my marriage. Spoiler alert, he does appear in the new modern Baywatch movie as a cameo. Oh, I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. And we're just going to surf past the fact that I've watched that movie. Yeah, we don't need to discuss your poor life choices. Okay, Knight Rider ran from 1982 to 1986. So concurrently. Okay, so Knight Rider, the Hasselhoff character, came after Knight Rider, the Mad Max character. Yes, from 79. There we go. Do you think there's any correlation there? Well, I mean, it is like a car driving. The cars are the same color. A point could be made. A point could definitely be made. (laughs) Yeah. Looping back into the compound, looping back into the minute, we get a backlit shot of the tire wall. And from behind the tire wall, up climbs the feral child who stands there looking out over the valley, watching Max drive away. And it's very sad, given what we saw earlier in this week. Yes, it's reiterating our heartbreak for the feral child. And I love the the silhouette that they do again. They did it back in the workshop a little bit. Here, it's much stronger. That physically reminds us that the feral child is just a little boy. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of grown-up-esque things, you know, murdering somebody and hunting and things like that. But he is just a little boy. And this scene really drives how alone he is into the viewers. And one of the things that I was thinking about is this isn't the first time that this has happened to him. This isn't the first time that someone he looks up to has driven or gone off into the night. Mm-hmm. He's felt that pain before. Yeah, we, when we first got introduced to the feral child, posited that he was abandoned, not necessarily orphaned like Tarzan in the Disney movie. Mm-hmm. That it was probably more akin to what we're going to see in Thunderdome, where an adult was there and then an adult went to go for help and left the child behind. So... I think you're exactly right, Porter. The idea that the feral child probably has seen at least a couple of people walk out on him to say nothing of any other travelers that may have come to the compound that caught the feral child's eye. And yeah, he's part of the compound, but he's different than everybody else. And so, yeah, he's incredibly alone. And we talked earlier about how he could grow into Max or Wes. This actually is kind of building him towards a Max character. Mm -hmm. People leaving his life, leaving him behind, whether that be through death or their paths taking them somewhere else, it's definitely turning him more into the loner character. Yeah, hardened because every time he tries to reach out and make a connection with someone, they let him down. And eventually, like Max, he'll start pushing those down into the feel hole and he will not want those connections anymore. Mm -hmm. Jeez. (laughs) We just got really deep here. Which is good. We're dealing with a small child in the wasteland. Yeah. Even if he murders people, he's still a child. And I like that 
we go from seeing the feral child with the light behind him and the dark in front of him, and then we switch perspectives and we see that black on black driving out into the deserty landscape. And for the second time this movie, Max gets to a certain point and then just disappears into blackness. And if Max had his way, that would be the curtain call right there. Exactly. That would be the end of his story. He would just go off into the wasteland, go on to the next adventure, roll credits. I love the visual of the repeated performance of him going out into the night being swallowed by the dark. And I also want to point out that the scene that we're referring to, the last time he did that, was only... 24 hours ago yeah it was I think so. the previous night that he did that before this has been a very very busy day for everybody and a lot has been accomplished a lot has been decided on a lot of torture has been witnessed yeah because i'm thinking he made the deal got the gasoline snuck out under cover of night fell into a ditch got past all the raiders with the help of the feral child, got up to the top of the ridge at dawn, found the gyro captain mid-morning. They walked all the way back to the gyrocopter. They flew to the truck. He started up the truck, went back to the compound, fought off the raiders in the compound, and then however, whatever time of day it was, Papagallo said, you've got 12 hours to fix that thing. And the mechanic and the mechanic's assistant are still working very diligently to fix it. But yeah, that... All of that happened in one day. Because as Max is leaving, it's very close to dawn. I'd really want a nap at that point. Oh, yeah. I would like to think that there was some sort of editing cut that happened where Max got to take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) There was sleep somewhere in there. You can hope. Well, we did get to see him eating. Mm -hmm. So that kind of falls in the same category as sleeping. Yeah. Like the basic necessities of life, taking care of them while you're, you know, when you're not adventuring. It's your Dungeons and Dragons long rest moment. Exactly. He's got to refill his action points so that he can have another encounter. But then again, we also have movie magic where people just don't need to do things like eat, sleep, and poop. Right. (laughs) You had to bring up poop. Well, yeah. Nobody poops in movies. <laughs> so as the black on black goes back to black, we cut to Wes sitting in one of the raider camps. And he is, I would argue, almost meditating, sitting very still with his eyes closed, probably trying to calm the raging beast within. It's one of the most peaceful moments you actually see that character have. Yeah, it's kind of eerie <laughs> to see him <laughs> in that state. Knowing that character, that he can achieve that kind of calm, makes him more frightening. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he is more made up than he usually is. Every time we've seen him before in this movie, he hasn't had that white face paint. He's got that line above his eyes and then the line that goes across his nose and cheeks. And the addition of the face paint is very interesting to me, and I kind of wonder why it's there. I have a couple of ideas. Maybe it's a just generic war paint because they know that, you know, stuff is about to hit the fan. Maybe it's a accomplishment war paint because he got his way into the compound. And so his reward is more face paint. Maybe it's a shame thing because Lord Humongous had to squeeze the air out of him. Or maybe it's a mark of mourning. Could be because of the golden youth. I mean, that happened very recently. (laughs) 
He's in pain. I mean, that's what's driving a lot of his rage against Max specifically. Mm -hmm. I really liked the idea of the face paint being a Raider version of the Cone of Shame. But the more I thought about it, the more there were just more reasons behind it. And I think the most obvious one is just they're expecting a fight to break out. So he wants to look fierce. And, you know, if you think ahead to Fury Road, so shiny and chrome... And even aside from the shiny and chrome, Furiosa does the same thing. She takes the grease from the transmission and puts it on her forehead before a battle of sorts. Yeah, it's it's definitely that some sort of event is coming. Some conflict is going to happen. Clearly more face paint will make me win. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I think it's also communicating to us that the Horde has also spent the night preparing and intend on attacking the compound either before the compound can finish their preparations or as soon as they try and make a break for it. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. I mean, we've spent this time talking about all of the work that's going on in the compound. The raiders aren't just sitting around a campfire telling stories that entire time. Mm -hmm. They've been in a rage. Something is going on there. Oh, yeah. Yes. Especially that one guy with the fire nunchucks and whatnot as they've been doing their little terror montage because that guy, oh, he was raving out so hard. Maybe the face paint is left over from the torture rave Ooh. that they had the previous night. I like that idea. That that makes a lot of sense. And maybe he was meditating in recovery from that expenditure of energy. Like someone found some weird moss growing on a rock and everybody started sniffing it. And now this is him trying to come back from that trip. Yes. Just chilling out next to the weird camel skull on a stick. Me like, okay, come down from the high. Yep. The peyote is wearing off now. Exactly. Yeah. Refocus the rage, recenter the anger. Wes is there trying to recenter himself. And in the distance, over the sound of the wind, comes the rumble of a V8 engine. And Wes's eyes pop open. And he does this slow stand. And I just love the way he moves because you can tell almost as soon as he fully comprehends the situation, oh, it's on. The rage washes over him. I mean, you really get to see, and that's, I think, what makes him such a scary character, is the calm transform into the rage. Yeah. So crazy. And he whips his arm around. He starts screaming. He's yelling, we go. This is the exact same thing that happened last time. Yep. When Max approached with the rig, exact same sequence of events. Wes is sitting there doing something calm, getting a haircut, meditating, coming down from his rave high. He hears the engine, seems to pause perhaps to confirm that the engine is from an opponent rather than from a friendly face, and then proceeds to fly into a rage. I wonder if that's why they keep Wes around, because he just has that yell, that or something like that. Well, it was very effective before with the rig. Like, they got in gear really quickly. It's a little blood curdling. I mean, it's not exactly (laughs) something you go like, dude, keep it down. It's, nope, you pay attention when when that happens. Yeah. And we don't actually get to see too much of that flying because minute cuts off and we're just gonna have to pick it up on monday i think it's just where he puts his hood on the car and stuff's about to happen exactly exactly well that brings us to the end of the minute i think this is a good opportunity for us to take a 
look back at the important events that brought us to this point. We've had a very lively and in-depth discussion. I think we need to remind our listeners where we were when this week started. So Monday morning, we had Papagallo and Curmudgeon trying to convince Max to stay and help by first showing off where they wanted to go and then flipping the good cop, bad cop method into Papagallo, just attacking Max's lifestyle. And it actually started off, you know, the good cop, bad cop started off well. You know, he touched Max, but not in an aggressive manner. It was, you know, that friendly, good cop touch. But when that's not working, he gets a bit more aggressive. Yeah, the little pushing and shoving and and physical interacting that Papa Gallo does, it gets gets a lot more as it goes. And Max responds in kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because as Papagallo finds that Max is got a soft spot for the family that he lost, he pushes on it, and he pushes too hard, grabs Max, and then Max just decks him. Literally just decks him. Yep. Sucker punch right to the chin and, and knocks him over into some barrels. Yeah. I said it the other day. And I feel like it bears repeating. If you're in a situation like that and you go to grab someone's arm and they don't want to talk to you, yeah, they're going to haul off and punch you. That's just how it works because that's how emotions are. So Papagallo gets back up to his feet. He calls Max garbage and then limps away. And that was him defending his pride there. I mean, before he was really working on Max, but getting punched and knocked over. I mean, I definitely see Papagallo, again, we've talked about it, as a character that is very prideful and... To be knocked on his rear like that when he was, you know, trying a plan hurt his pride. Yeah. A lot more than did his chin. (laughs) Oh, and the poor guy, he got a cut on his lip. Oh. Those giant pouty Mick Jagger lips. That guy does have a lot of lip, and and now I'm not loving the image in my head of it, but you're not wrong. (laughs) Every time I talk about how Mike Preston, the actor, looks like Mick Jagger, I imagine Papagallo up there talking in front of the compound and he just breaks into a rolling stone song <laughs> uh, we did talk about the importance of speeches and yep. song even mm-hmm. better. so after papagallo and the curmudgeon gave up on trying to convince max we had the feral child literally drop into the scene and sneak into the black on black and try to stow away with max but he just put the kibosh on that in no. what was arguably the saddest scene this week <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we alluded to it when we were talking about Minute 65, but the, the whole treating him like a dog. That scene is how you drive a dog away, which is horrible and, you know, will make anyone's heartstrings tug. But seeing it done again to a little boy drives home. Again, this is a very lost, alone little child in the wasteland. I should have picked up on it the first time when you said he was getting treated like a dog because the reference I made for sad go-away scenes was from the movie Airbud. <laughs> Did you see that when you were when you were little? Who didn't see Airbud when they were little? Oh that my gosh, one scene, I didn't. That one scene where he tries to make Airbud go away. I think a lot more people are familiar with like Harry and the Hendersons at the end of that movie where John Glyph goes like, "Go away, we don't want you anymore." And I mean, that's that's a trope that's in a lot of movies. It's, oh yeah, you, know, you drive away the emotion, and that's used a lot. When I was prepping for that minute, I went online and I found a list of the saddest goodbyes in cinema. And unfortunately, I didn't bring it up on the day because a lot of the examples were like, "Oh, here's the goodbye from the Notebook, and the goodbye from Sophie's Choice, and the goodbye from all these other like legitimately sad movies, ones that aren't ridiculous and have animals that." play sports or sasquatches that bother families 
So I was like, that's a little too heavy to bring up in this context. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. That was a good choice. And then for yesterday's minute, once Max got rid of the feral child, he drove his interceptor through the compound. And we had that little scene between Zeta and Papagallo where Zeta's like, why are you letting him leave? And Papagallo's like, chill out, blood. He didn't actually say that. That was me slipping into a slang that I really have no business using. I'm sorry. Perhaps. <laughs> Now, you guys uh, postulated that maybe Papagallo was really high during this scene. Yeah, we did talk about that off off microphone. And, you know, that's a good theory. But the other thing is, he's had this interaction with Max. He clearly knows Max wants to leave now. But he doesn't trash talk Max when, you know, Max is out of earshot. Mm -hmm. He's talking to this other character, and he says he's an honorable man. And, you know, I think... Papagallo sees traits in Max that he really wishes he had in himself. And in the end of the scene, Papagallo says that he'll drive the bus. Yeah. And that's him, I think, aspiring to be more like Max. A little stupid brave. I like that. One of the first times that we see Papagallo, way back a couple days ago, uh, was when Papagallo canceled the contract that Max had with Nathan because Nathan died. Then the contract died with Nathan. I think a truly honorable man would have honored that contract. Saying, okay, you brought Nathan back. He died anyways, but you did your part. And so I will honor the agreement that you had with him. Oh. Papagallo didn't do that, and I'm wondering if he's regretting it now. I bet he is. I'm a little embarrassed we didn't think of that when yeah. he said it the first time. Yeah, I think seeing how Max worked really, really hard to honor this second contract, and that's all he wants. He fulfilled his contract, and he wants to go. He's being very businesslike about it and very honorable about it, that Papagallo now feels bad that he didn't honor the first contract. And he's maybe wishing, hoping that he had, because it could have changed the way that last interaction went. Mm. Yes. A moment of quiet reflection about Papagallo. Well, Porter, it has been a lot of fun having you here in studio. It's been a markedly better situation having you in person where we can interact with you and not... I mean, I hate to destroy the illusion because I know it probably sounded a lot of the times like we had our other guests in studio because audio quality being good and whatnot, but it's been nice having you to interact with in person. This is my first podcasting experience ever, and it's been a blast. I mean, being able to hang out with my friends and talk about amazing movies, it's a good time. Oh my gosh, Julia, this we, means... We popped the second cherry. Yeah, we're at, we're at two now. Yes. Nice. We're just going to keep doing that. <laughs> um, so, Porter, if people wanted to check you out and see what you're up to, are there any ways that you could suggest people to connect with you? If people want to see what I'm up to, uh, they can check me out on Instagram at nrporter. And if they want to see some of my more interesting cosplay or crafting progress, uh, I'm ashamed to say they can find me on Tumblr at Dapper Cat Cosplay. <laughs> Sounds good. So next week, we are going to see how effective Max's plan is. This whole leave everybody at loan and go back into the wilderness thing. We're going to see if that bold strategy works out for him. So come back for that. Plot twist, it doesn't. <laughs> 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 65 of The Road Warrior. We'll see you on Monday.